Today's scripture reading is from Revelations, Revelations chapter 22, which is right at the end. Um, so you can flip to the, all the way to the back, or you can just turn to page 879. So today we'll be reading Revelations 22, verses 6 through 20. Revelations 22, verse 6. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen... I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right, and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to see the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from the book, this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies of these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay. Let me find out if I can walk around. Is this the uh, platform mic or my mic? Platform mic. My mic? I'm getting conflicting signals. I can't use my mic. Okay, here we go. I can't walk. <laughs> or unless I... <laughs> it's going to be really hard. I've been walking for so long. Uh, okay. I'm always really happy to hear that somebody's reading Leviticus. Because it really makes my job so much easier. You know, there's basically... Uh, Myers-Briggs. Some of you take Myers-Briggs temperament indicator for work. 
And Myers-Briggs kind of categorizes people as a, either uh, extrovert or introvert and so forth. But one of the categorizations is whether you're thinking or feeling. Now, this does not mean how smart you are. You know, being a T, a thinker, being a T doesn't mean you're smarter than if you're an F, a feeler. It just, it's really very narrow in its specification. It's how do you make decisions? Do you make decisions based on rational cognitive considerations? You think something through and then you act. Or do you make decisions based on feeling? on emotive considerations. You connect with something viscerally. You, you res something resonates with you, and then you act on that. So some of us are motivated by thinking. Some of us are motivated, motivated by feeling. And if anyone can get through the book of Leviticus, it's clear you're motivated by thinking more than by feeling. And since I'm kind of a T rather than an F, it makes my life a lot easier. Now, last week's sermon was very much F. So if last week's sermon kind of connected with you, you're probably an F. And today's sermon, you've got a lot of work to do. But if you're a T, okay, today will work well for you. Now, we've come to the end of our exposition on the book of Revelation. We may not drop Revelation at this point, but at least we've come to the end. No sighs of relief or of applause. No one breaking out in spontaneous applause. Well, that's a good thing. But to help you remember where we've come from, what I've done is there's a bulletin insert, which is a bad thing to mention now. Don't read it now. Listen to me now and then read it later. But anyway, on one side, it's really the original text, what it meant to those people in that time. What, what the church of Asia Minor was supposed to get out of this. And the other side, I simplified it, or I made it more contemporary, what we're meant to get out of it. Now, you would realize, if you've been here for, gee, any more than two or three weeks, you would realize that the whole book of Revelation makes one point. Their lives were hard. Our lives can be hard. So in the midst of their hard lives, and they call out to God for deliverance, and he doesn't deliver them, how are they, what's going to motivate them to hang in? And this author spends 22 chapters explaining to them why they should persevere with God even though it's hard. Why they should persevere with God even though he doesn't deliver them. How are they going to hang in there? 22 chapters. And today is his last argument why they should persevere with God. And the point is quite simple and yet a little bit complicated. It's quite simple because he says it five times. Take a look at Revelation chapter 22. It's, uh, I don't know what page it's on. But anyway, Revelation 22 in your pew Bible. Take a look first of all at uh, verse uh, 6. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 10. The time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20, Yes, I am coming soon. Uh, the final reason why they should persevere through suffering, through difficulty, hang in there with God, is quite simply because it will soon all be over. Jesus will soon come back. You can't miss it. Five times. He says a lot of other things in this chapter, but that's the basic idea that keeps coming over. Five times, I will soon come back. There's only one problem with that. 
It's been how long? 2,000 years, maybe. And you think, okay, where is this soon coming that he, we keep hearing about? Is Jesus coming back soon? And if he's coming back, you know, a lot of interpreters will now say, oh, he's coming back soon in our lifetime. But they've been saying this for a while. Back in the year 1000, people expected Jesus to come back any time. Jonathan Edwards, some of you have read in high school, some of you read his sermon, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards, who preached out in, uh, in uh, Western Mass, Central Mass, during the 1700s, he expected Jesus to come back in his time. The 1840s, a lot of people expected Jesus to come back. Uh, the U.S. Civil War, some people thought this would be the war to end all wars and would bring, in, would bring Jesus' return. The Salvation Army, started by William Booth. William Booth thought the Salvation Army was going to be God's forces to bring in the end of time. December 31st, 1899. A lot of people expected Jesus to return before the new century. In 1988, remember the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988? And then the sequel in 89, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1989? Hal Lindsey in the 1960s wrote a Phenomenal bestseller, swept across America, available in the, uh, the secular bookstores. Hinting, not actually stating, but hinting that Jesus would come back in the 1980s. Uh, Tim LaHaye made a fortune out of 12 or 14 or 15 books about Jesus coming back in time for the new millennium. He didn't say that was going to happen, but people got so excited about the new millennium, maybe Jesus is going to come back, then they started buying up Tim LaHaye's books about Jesus coming back. So a lot of people have expected Jesus to come back soon. And so far he hasn't. And if we think he's going to come back soon in our day, isn't that still 2,000 years late? I mean, if Revelation were written to us, then it makes sense. But if it was written to the church in Turkey 2,000 years ago, it's a little bit harder to see how Jesus coming back tomorrow would be soon. You know, for us, yeah, but not for them. So what's going on here when Jesus says, I am coming back soon? And so the question really becomes, is Jesus coming back soon? Actually, the way you answer that depends on what question, what you mean by that question. Is Jesus coming back soon? We keep talking about the second coming of Christ. I don't find that phrase ever in Scripture. The second coming of Christ. That's what we call it. Arguably, in Scripture, you've got a pre-coming, a prequel. Then you've got a first coming of Christ, a second coming of Christ, a third coming of Christ, a fourth coming of Christ. And what we call the second coming of Christ is probably the fifth coming of Christ. So when you want to, is Christ coming back soon? Well, do you mean his prequel or you mean his first coming, his second coming, his third coming, his fourth coming, his fifth coming? Which coming do you mean? So let me show you from Scripture. We're going to work a little bit. Let me show you from Scripture that there's a whole bunch of comings of Christ, some of which occurred in their time, and one of which we're still waiting for. So follow me. Turn, first of all, to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, chapter 12. In your pew Bible, if you brought your own Bible, I would commend you, but I can't help you. But if you use the pew Bible, page 636... 
Daniel chapter 12. This is really the prequel. And in, in a sense, Daniel meant it. Christ has come. Look at Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 12, page 636. Look at Daniel chapter uh, 12, verse 4, but we'll start there. Now, I want to make a point about Daniel first. We haven't spent a lot of time on it. But when Revelation was written, when John wrote Revelation, he was responding to the book of Daniel. Here's the thing. Daniel was a problem. For, the, for John and his generation, Daniel was a problem. You remember the story of Daniel, right? Daniel in the lion's den, his three buddies in, in the furnace. You, you remember the, uh, all the stories, the dramatic stories about Daniel. But what does Daniel teach? Daniel teaches that when Israel is dragged off into exile and when they're living a, as you know, uh, refugees in, a, in the midst of a superpower, and when people in that superpower decide to persecute them for their faith, what will God do? God's going to intervene. God's going to rescue them. God rescued Daniel. God rescued his three colleagues. God rescued them. And then Revelation, they find themselves in a similar situation. They're occupied. They're, they're, in a, uh, they're living as refugees within a superpower. And they're being persecuted for their faith. And they read the book of Daniel. What are they going to hear? They're going to hear God rescues his people when they suffer under a superpower. And what happens to the people in Revelation in, in ancient Turkey? God doesn't rescue them. So really, what, what John is doing in Revelation is offering a, a reflection. Part of what he's doing is reflecting on the story of Daniel. And he repeatedly, dozens of times, quotes or alludes to the book of Daniel. And in chapter 22, the, today's passage is another case where he quotes from the book of Daniel. So I'll take you back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. And see what God has given this, all these visions to Daniel. And Daniel's written them down. And what does God say in conclusion? Verse 4. You, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. He's given Daniel this vision. He's told Daniel to write it down. And now he says, seal up that scroll. Lock it up. Don't preach it. Don't read it to people. Hide it. Don't tell them. Keep it closed up until the time of the end, verse 4. Verse 9. Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed. Until when? Until the time of the end. Verse 13. As for you, Daniel, go your way until the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise, you will resurrect to receive your allotted inheritance. So God gives Daniel a vision of the end times or a vision of the future which becomes a picture of the end times. But he tells Daniel, close it up. Seal it. Don't preach it. Don't read it to other people. Keep it closed until the end it comes. Now in Revelation chapter 22, what do we say, what do we see that God says to Daniel? You see Revelation chapter 22, verse 10. What does God tell Daniel? Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Daniel, seal it, because it's the distant future. And to John in Revelation, he says, don't seal it. The time is near. So 
Revelation is saying to his audience, the time that Daniel talked about, at least part of that time has now come. It's now here. It's no longer to be hidden. It's no longer past. It's no longer a distant future. It's now. It's our day. It's our age. This is the time. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. What Revelation is saying is, unlike Daniel, unlike the Old Testament, a new era has dawned. We're we're coming up to this new age. And, And this is the first sense in which Jesus has already come. Is that we are no longer in the time of the Old Covenant. We are now in the time of the New Covenant. We are no longer in the time of the Old Age. We're now in the New Age. Jewish chronology divided all of time into two periods. The present and the future. And John is saying to his audience, we are in the future. The future age has come. And then he'll spend much of the rest of the book explaining how the future has come. So in the first sense, the new age has come. Because Jesus has come, the new covenant has come. Uh, Let me show you a second sense. Uh, Turn over to to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, page 873. 873. Is Jesus coming back soon? Revelation chapter 12 makes the point that Jesus has already come back. Remember the story of Revelation 12 where you've got a, a woman and a baby and a dragon. The woman, gives, the w- woman is pregnant and she cries out with the pains of birth and a dragon swoops in trying to kill this baby as soon as it's born. He's got this metaphor of Jesus' birth and of Satan's hostility toward Jesus and, and Satan's attempt to kill Jesus before he can save the world. And then what do we read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10? Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God. This is a reference to the first coming of Christ. When Jesus says, I'm coming soon, this is part of what it entails. That Jesus has come for our salvation. That he's come to die. And as a result of his death, chapter 12, verse 10, the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. As a result of Jesus' death, Satan no longer can accuse us before God. As a result of Jesus' death for our sin, him taking our sin upon himself and him dying for our sin, it means we don't need to sin anymore. We don't need to die for our sin any longer. As a result of Jesus dying, we can appear before God clothed in his holiness. As a result of Jesus dying for our sin, when we appear before God, Satan can no longer say, he belongs to me. He's a sinner, and all sinners belong to me. Now when we appear before God, we appear clothed in Christ's righteousness. 
We are virtuous and holy before God. Satan no longer has any claim on us. And this is part of what it means for Jesus to come. Chapter 12, verse 10. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. Is Jesus coming soon? In this sense, he's already come. In another sense, he's already come. Turn over to page 701 in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 24, page 701. There's another sense in which Jesus has already come. And Matthew talks about it in chapter 24. When Jesus came, he was crucified by a coalition of Jewish religious leaders and Roman political authorities. And so his crucifixion was an act of judgment against the temple and against the religious leadership of his day. In crucifying Jesus, they turned away from God. And so in response, God warns them of judgment. Jesus warns them of the coming judgment. The temple will be destroyed, Jesus warns. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The nation of Israel will be destroyed. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, he talks about this destruction in chapter 24. And then he says in verse 30, At that time, the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. What Jesus is saying here is that the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of Israel itself is a sign of his appearing. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds as they see this temple destroyed. It's an indication from God that he has rejected this temple, that he's rejected the city, that he's disciplining the nation for the crucifixion of Christ. It's a sign that the Son of Man has been exalted to the right hand of God. And this is the second sense. We could call the second coming of Christ. His coming in conjunction with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. At that time, the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. There's a symbolic representation of Jesus coming in that destruction of the temple. We could call that his second coming. And then, his third coming. Turn yet again. Revelation this time, page 867. Revelation chapter 1 to 3. Maybe some of you have read the book To Kill a Mockingbird in school. I mean, it's been around a long time. We had to read it when I was in school. It's been around a long time. Remember how the book starts? And how the book ends. There's a lot of other themes that go, well, there's one other major theme in the middle, but it starts on the same theme as it ends on. The, as it ends on. 
This is a literary technique called inclusion, right? It starts with these three kids trying to meet up with Boo Radley. And it ends with Boo Radley saving two of those kids. This is called inclusion. You start a book and you end a book on the same note. One of our problems with understanding the book of Revelation is because we read chapter 22 as if it's a continuation of chapter 21, which was a continuation of chapter 20, which was a continuation of chapter 19. We read them as, as if they're in consecutive order. But chapter 22 is an epilogue. It's an inclusion with, with a prologue. It doesn't follow chapter 21. It actually goes all the way back to Revelation chapter 1 to 3. And you can compare Revelation 22 with Revelation chapter 1, and you see these are bookends. He's, in Revelation 21, he says, here's how it starts. And then in chapter 22, he says, this is the end. And to admit, let you know it's the end, he repeats the start. It's the same theme. And so he talks about, when, when Jesus says, I am coming soon, in Revelation chapter 22, he's used that language before. He's used it five or six times before. All in Revelation chapter 1 to 3. Notice chapter 2, 5. He says to one church, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Chapter 2, 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them. Verse 20, chapter 2, verse 25. Hold on to what you have until I come, he tells the church. Chapter 3, verse 3. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Chapter 3, 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And chapter 3, verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and eat with him and he with me odd that we don't take Revelation 3.20 and say that's only the end times. Odd that we would apply that to all people at all times. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and we'll eat with him. Jesus promises to come. And to those who invite him, he promises to come and, and have a relationship with them. And with those who continue to resist him and rebel against him, he warns them he's coming in, in judgment on, the, on these churches. It's odd that when Revelation 22 uses that very same language three times, I will come soon, I will come soon, I will come soon, we don't go back to Revelation 1 to 3 for some reason and we say, oh, well, this is his final coming is going to be soon. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, this is a third sort of Jesus coming. Jesus is saying, is, I'm always on the verge of coming. I, this is a coming for assessment. Uh, this is a coming to those who are rebelling against God and a warning. If you fight me, I will come. Eventually, I'm gonna, I mean, soon I'm going to come. And then we'll have it out. Or to those who call out to him for salvation, he says, I will come. I'm ready at any time to come. And this is his third coming. Is Jesus coming soon? Sure, at any time. For any of us. For our church as a whole, corporately. For us individually. If we cry out for salvation, if we live in resistance. He says, I will come. I will soon come. Hold on until I come. I am coming soon. I will come in 
and eat meat. So this is a third sense in which Jesus comes. He's already come in the sense that the new age has started from the time of Daniel. He's already come in the sense of the incarnation. He's already come in the sense of the judgment on Israel. He comes anew every generation in the sense of assessing and offering salvation. Yet there's a fourth sense in which he comes in Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 18, page 876. Now, technically, you could argue this is not Jesus coming. This is an angel coming. But chapter 18, verse 46, page 876. Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. And he had great authority. And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And the angel pronounces, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. A haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. The angel here announces the destruction of Babylon. And Babylon was a symbol of the city of Rome. This is a, a fourth sense in which Jesus has come. He came, God came in judgment of the city of Rome, uh, Babylon in Daniel's time. God has come in judgment on the city of Rome within a couple hundred years after John wrote this. And this he refers to as a coming, an angel coming down from heaven, coming in judgment. Jesus comes in this sense, not in John's times, but in the 4th century. And many times since, he came in the 6th century B.C., against Babylon. He came in about the 4th century A.D. against Rome. But this is a, a fourth kind of Jesus coming, where he comes in judgment on any empire that opposes him and his people. He comes, and he announces, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a home for demons. In John's time, this was still anticipated. This was still a future coming. In our time, it's a past coming. Over a millennium ago, Jesus came in judgment on Rome. But this is a fourth sense in which he comes. He comes in bringing in the new age. He comes in the incarnation. He comes in the judgment of Jerusalem. He comes in the assessment of churches through every generation. He comes, as he came in the fourth century, in judgment of empire. And a fifth sense in which he comes. Comes out in Revelation 19 to 21. Read chapter, turn with me to chapter 21, page 878. Now what we call the second coming of Christ is really the fifth sort of coming. It's not the second, it's the fifth. And you see in Revelation 21, we have this promise. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's in this sense 
that Jesus has not fully come back yet. He has not yet fully come to dwell with us so that we can dwell with him. We are not yet directly, immediately in his presence. He is not yet in a fullest sense our God and we are his people. We are not living in close community yet. This is the only sense out of the five in which Christ has not yet come back. He's come back in the sense of a new age. He's come back in the sense of incarnation. He's come back in the sense of his ascension and vindication. He's come back continually in assessment of his people. He's come back in judgment of every empire that's ever stood against him. And he's yet to come back. He's coming back in the sense of bringing a new heaven and a new earth. So has Jesus come back? Is Jesus coming back soon? Well, he's come back four times already. And he's yet to come back the fifth. Practically speaking, what does all of this have to say to us? This is not just meant to be a systematic theology. What do any of this have to say to us? Take a look at Revelation chapter 22. This is where we are. We're in between two comings. There are two comings that are still relevant for us. There is the coming that Jesus says he did to that church, those churches in Revelation 1 to 3, the coming in assessment. And he's coming back at a future time for full redemption. And as we live in between this, in this in-between time, we live after his first coming. We live waiting for his fifth coming. We live in imminent facing of his third coming. As we live in this in-between time, here is God's word to us. Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 to 15. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Maybe in the sense of his fifth coming. Maybe in the sense of the end of time. But maybe only in the sense of Revelation 1 to 3. Assessment of our lives. Assessment of our church. Behold, I am coming soon. And my reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Then verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Verse 15, outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, divination, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices false work. And this is where we stand, waiting either for his assessment of our lives or waiting for his redemption of all creation. And whether it's the third coming comes first for us, or whether we see it the fifth coming first for us. Whichever of these comes, the, the consequence is still the same for how we live. My reward is with me, he says. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they might have the right to salvation. Cursed are those who practice sin divination, sexual immorality, murder, idolatry, and falsehood. This is where we all stand as we wait either for Jesus' assessment of our lives or as we wait for him to wrap up all of creation. He invites us. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This is an image for us coming to Jesus 
for the forgiveness of our sins. We wash our robes, we wash our clothing, we wash ourselves in the blood of the Lamb. It's a mixed metaphor. What he's doing is he's inviting us in anticipation of the fact that he's coming back to assess. He's coming back to redeem. He invites us to come to him, to come to Christ for forgiveness, to bring our lives before Christ and say, here's our sin, take it from us. Jesus came in his first coming to die for sin. And this is our hope, that as we come to him, he will take our sin away and bear it for us, and he will give us his pure and clean and holy garments. That's one exhortation from this passage. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to to the tree of life, that they may go into the gates, through the gates, into the city. And the the other exhortation from this passage is just the opposite. Outside are those who practice divination and worship spirits. Outside are the sexually immoral. Outside are the murderers, the idolaters, and those who practice falsehood. Just as he offers salvation to those who throw themselves on his mercy, so he warns us, whether we claim to be his people or not, that we must live with him and in him, that we must renounce other spirits and other gods, that we must renounce and and avoid sexual immorality, that we must renounce hate and murder, that we must renounce falsehood. Jesus has come already to make a way for us to come into a relationship with him. Jesus is coming again one day to assess how we've lived. And he's coming at the end of time to wrap up this whole earth and the heavens. He invites us to be prepared. He urges us to be prepared by throwing ourselves on his mercy for salvation and on following him in obedience and in holiness. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that Jesus has come and that he's come for us. We thank you that he's come to open the possibility up of salvation. We thank you that he invites himself into our lives if we will simply embrace him. We thank you that he is coming again one day. And we pray, Father, that by your word and by your spirit we might be ready for him when he comes. In his name we pray. Amen.